KP, KPC, News, Information, Culture, KPCC, California Sensibility. Give me a beat! Hey, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair, and we are the Mashup Americans. Okay, so I have a confession. Yes, please confess. I feel like lately I am just living in shouty caps. I'm just like... What is going on in the world? I know. Can you believe what that person just said? Ah, this dummies. I know. Also, a pro tip that I recently learned, everybody, and apparently I am many years behind, so I apologize. On your iPhone, if you have one, if you press the up arrow twice, click on it twice, it stays in all caps, which makes shouty caps much more convenient. <laughs> you know, what's actually incredible is that, like, I was 87% of our texts to each other are in shouty yeah. caps. Yeah. So that's a lot of extra work you've been doing. Yeah, I've been holding that arrow down. And then somebody <laughs> said it so casually, and I was like, ha, 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 I knew that. I didn't. Anyways. But there's a lot of shouty capsing these days. It's there true. is. There is. And I know that it's not that productive, but, you know, sometimes you just have to, like, express the disbelief that is happening, or I do. Yeah. And then, you know, I think there's, like, a moment then, this is my personal process, I have to, like, pull myself off the ledge and be like, okay, yes, some people are just wrong. Donald Trump. But in many cases, maybe it's just me. Like, I need to be able to learn how to, like, see and listen to people with vastly different opinions than myself and vastly different worldviews, because that's actually the most important work that we can all do as humans, right? Like, how else can you actually learn and connect? Totally. And hard to connect through shouty caps. Especially given like the way we get information now is all through social media, which is kind of curated to what you want to see and things that already reflect you. Um, it's nice to be able to actually have a really great conversation. Um, and so that's one of the things we love most about our guest today, Anna Holmes, who is a dear friend, senior vice president of content at First Look Media. This is very founder- fancy. Yeah, she's <laughs> pretty fancy. Uh, founder of Jezebel and the new co-host of the podcast about race. Uh, She has spent her career asking great questions and starting uncomfortable, smart conversations with people that she shares the opinion with and also doesn't, but really respects. And she just has a really great attitude about this. And we felt like we could learn so much from her. So we're just thrilled to have her on the show. She's also a Californian. She grew up with a white mom and a black dad, very mashy. And she uh, maybe had a jerry curl when she was in elementary school. I would just uh, please hold that image in your head throughout the episode. So now, on to the show. Anna Holmes, how do you mesh up? I am biracial. My father is African-American and my mother is white. You have a white mama? I have a blonde white mama. You, she's blonde in my yeah. head. I never imagined her being blonde. Why? What do you think? I don't know, Brunette. Mm-mm. Blonde. No. Not like bright blonde. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, not fluorescent. She no, doesn't not, like she, in the she's dark. not toe-headed. <laughs> but, um, so tell us about what it was like growing up mixed with a white mom and a black dad in California. The frustrating answer I could give would be, I don't know. I was just growing up like a kid like everybody else. That said, you know, I knew that it was obvious that my parents were from different backgrounds. Um, it wasn't like there were a lot of other couples in my hometown who looked like my parents. Um, where where did they meet? They met at, I believe, a party thrown by some civil rights activists in, I don't know if they were in South Carolina or if they were in Georgia. 
my mother was in the South because she was working for my godmother. And my dad was in the South because that's where he's from. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then they met. That's how they met. But she didn't live in the South. She lived in New York City. She was just visiting. So Was then, she from the North? She was from New York? She's from Ohio. So then there was a, you know, a courtship. Oh, that sounds like a very outdated word, but I, a, love a, a relationship. I like it. No, a relationship. I, 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 like, <laughs> no, I would like to keep it as a courtship. Okay. Go on. <laughs> a relationship I'm getting, between the two of them, you know, when she was in New York and he was in um, in the South. And so I guess he would come to visit her and she would go to visit him, which, you know, my impression is that those were two very different places to be an interracial couple. It was somewhat dangerous for him to be seen with my mother in the South, whereas in New York City, I'm not saying there, are, there aren't racists, racists in New York, but you know there was not the impending threat of physical violence being unleashed upon him walking around the streets of New York with a blonde white woman. What year was that approximately? Mm, sometime in the late 60s. I'd say yeah. 66 or 7. That's a pretty heavy time to yeah. to be doing that, right? So, like, because the loving decision was in '67, mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah, it's still uh, illegal, actually. And well, in 13 um, states, it was illegal. Yeah, right. So yeah. I don't know if if where I'm sure he was South Carolina South. was one of them. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it was exactly. One of them. That's exactly. We don't even have to look it up. That's just a big assumption. It still is <laughs> exactly making that decision to be together as a couple or to do this in a moment where you're physically, legally, all these things in danger. Yeah. And you're doing that. That's pretty in, That's pretty amazing for your yeah. parents to kind of make that leap for each other. You know, right now there's so much conversation around parents, particularly mashup parents who have mashup kids about like, how do we talk to our kids about race? Or how do we talk to about kids about all of our different identities? And it's like, when do you start? Is it a conversation that you in some ways push on them? Like, mm-hmm. I think... Right now, there's this whole genre of kids lit coming out, whether they're like tiny little picture books for like really young kids or, um, you know, books for kids that can read on their own that are like mixed me or, um, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's a picture book, making sure that the pictures are representative of your family. Mm-hmm. I can imagine by the time I was like 12 or 13, would I have loved to have had a heroine in a book? that like had some sort of similar story to mine. Of course, that's like Claudia and Cla- I was just going to say Claudia <laughs> Kishi. She was the only one and she was Japanese and skinny. So that was not me at the time. Yeah. But I'm 37 and I know you everything old. about I'm old <laughs> and I remember everything about Claudia Kishi. Huh. You know, yeah. it's like it was so important. I was very aware of my parents like pushing certain things on me that would in their minds they hoped would be more inclusive in terms of pop culture products. I was aware, because they would sometimes articulate this, that they were doing it in order to provide me with role models or examples of lives and existences and and that they weren't just that of white people. But sometimes... I, I wish that they hadn't like been so obvious about it. Like, <laughs> you know, like here's a book about Harriet Tubman. Like, they, 
and, and, and they also gave me a book about Louis Pasteur at the same time for, for, like, for kids, these kids' books, but they were pushing the Harriet Tubman one much harder um, than the Louis Pasteur. And, 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 I feel and like it, this is where, like, two weeks later, you got a quiz on Harriet Tubman. Yeah, or, but, but like, kids don't like to feel like they're being, they don't want to know they're being fed the broccoli. And I'm not saying that, like, Harriet Tubman is the broccoli and Louis Pasteur is, like, the velvet cream cake. Not at all. But, but so there was a certain um, purposefulness that, that I didn't resent it, but sometimes I was like, oh, here we go again. Or like, <laughs> we, we went, you know, that they wanted to sit me down in front of the TV to watch certain things. Mm-hmm. I think I grew, I grew up in a town with a lot of white people. I was accustomed to seeing white people. I was accustomed to being around them all the time. I was accustomed to the, them being the only people who were pretty much, you know, represented in movies um, or most movies and, and television shows that I watched and books that I read. Um, and I don't consciously remember being frustrated by that. I remember being older and looking back on it and being frustrated by it, but I don't recall being frustrated by it at the time because that's just the way that it was. Like right. the world I lived in was a white world. I think I might have been more frustrated by the lack of inclusion or that dreaded word diversity <laughs> in the things I encountered if I had lived in, if I had lived in a more mixed um, place. Place if I had lived. In a, in a place where there were actually people that were not white. What I found to be so surprising and and in some ways as a, as a new parent very moving and powerful was that when I did finally see representation like in pop culture mm-hmm. or in even in kind of in like celebrity culture and music, I just – I was like, whoa, this is what it's like. Mm-hmm. like and it was as late as fresh off the boat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was two years ago. Yeah. At that moment, I connected with everything that was happening. I was like, this, and again, it wasn't a Korean family. Same mm-hmm. way Claudia Kishi wasn't, mm-hmm. but it was an Asian family on TV having like immigrant language stuff going on. And it was so funny. And like I was on the internet, like discovering Asian Twitter. And I was like, this is so amazing. And it wasn't until then that it occurred to me that like, oh, maybe people, other people grow up like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like that's when I think... All we, we always at Mashup always talk about the power of representation, the po- the importance of seeing yourself reflected. But I it literally hadn't happened to me until I was thirty five. Yeah, that's crazy. I could say that I don't. I didn't feel like I saw myself represented until I was a little bit older, and even then, it wasn't that much. But I I kind of straddled this line where, where at least I think I did, where I didn't think that I was obviously black. Now that's um, there could be people who grew up with me who would who would beg to differ. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't feel that I was looked at or treated particularly differently because of the, my skin color. I was a, I was tan, but a lot of kids were tan. I had brown hair, and yes, it was very fluffy, and like I had a little afro. Um, I would, we would like to learn about how did your mom do your hair? Or did your dad do your hair? My dad didn't touch my hair. Mm. My mother didn't know how to touch my hair. Meaning, like, because well, back then there were no YouTube videos. No, she didn't know what to do with it, and there was a lot of crying. <laughs> there was so much crying because she would come out the tangles, and you know, I, I, and I would be crying, and I'd also be crying because I didn't want the hair that I had. I wanted hair that when I dipped underwater at the pool, I'd come up and it would all be wet. Like oftentimes. <laughs> It would still be kind of dry because it was like, you know, it, it almost like repelled water yeah. <laughs> in a way. Like it was, it was, it was curly or, or coarse or dry enough that that I really would take a while, a, a bit to get it soaked through. Um, and yeah, I wanted to have hair that moved when the wind blew, and it didn't do that. 
I had no. That said, I had hair that could do other things people other people's hair couldn't do. Like I could hide things in it. <laughs> <laughs> I could I could have it braided on either side of my of my head and then fold the braids upwards and they would stick out. My well, mother didn't know what, my mother didn't know what to do. And in fact, but she tried. She tried, and and her best slash worst attempt was when she took me to a hairdresser in the closest city, Sacramento, which is only fifteen miles away, nearest urban quote unquote place. And took me to a hairdresser named Cecil, who'd been recommended <laughs> to her because he was an African-American hairdresser and he had a lot of black clients, including one of my mom's friends from church. So there were some black people around. There's not that many. Um, his, his solution to w- what to do with my hair was to straighten it. So first he relaxed mm-hmm. it straight and then he permed it with looser curls than I actually had. So that it didn't stick out so much. <laughs> but then, But this was essentially... His attempt to give me a jerry curl, which he successfully did, because I needed to. I'm weeping. He needed to. He needed to up. He he told me I had to upkeep the hair by putting in this curl activator, which is a very greasy substance that you in a pump bottle and you spray it on your hair. And and I did as I was told, and so I had I had a kind of jerry curl. Yeah. How old were you? I believe the jerry curl began uh, at around the age of ten or eleven. Because in sixth grade I had it, in fifth grade I didn't. (laughs) Do you laugh at animals doing human-like things on the internet? Duh. Does Martin Lawrence make you cry with laughter? Well, you have so much in common with the guest on our next episode, the comedian Michelle Collins. We talked to her about growing up the tallest kid in Miami, why her immigrant family changed their name, and what makes us laugh. Subscribe now, iTunes.com slash mashup. Was there a moment that you, because you identify as black woman now. Yeah, and I did as a kid, but but, but, kid. but that was that was uh, that was both I think a uh, an administrative and also political decision that was made on the part of my parents that I accepted because there was no option to choose anything else on any sort of government form, whether it was a census form or something that you had to fill out for school. When it asked me um, what I was, it, the option was black. It wasn't I couldn't check black and white. There was no mixed option, so mm. I was told from a very young age that I was black. I considered myself to be black. And I didn't ever question that. I think there were times that I didn't want to be black in the sense that I didn't want to have some of the things that came with being black, like the hair I didn't like or the fact that my butt, it, it was different than that of the other girls. <laughs> like I wanted, to, I wanted to kind of tuck it in a little bit. I felt like it stuck out. There, there and were you thi- know now everybody's butt. Even like I Old know. Navy sells like booster I jeans. I know, I know. But like that wasn't the case. I mean, and this is like I was nine years old. I didn't have an ass at all. I mean, but, but I would notice these things. But I, I considered myself black. There was no other way for me to consider myself. And again, this was partly, this was, I think, also a political decision on my parents' part. I, I don't know that I'd say it was an acquiescence to the, uh, the government's definition of what black was. But I think it was political in the sense that it was something to be proud of. My mother never talked admiringly about white people that often. <laughs> she talked mostly admiringly about black people. I felt very much that like it was a good thing to be black. And I hadn't been given reason to think otherwise in any personal way yet. And what I understood or intuited from my own father or other black people about what it was like to move around in, in a white world as a black person. And oftentimes gender felt like it was a, it was a more defining mm-hmm. part of my character than my 
racial heritage. I think because I sometimes passed as white. I think because kids did not really talk about my being black. They just Mm -hmm. didn't. I mean, I mean, thank God. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, I wasn't I wasn't teased about that sort of thing. And it didn't really come up. But maybe that's because I I fit in so much or I or I, you know, read as white to them. But the gender thing was got was what tended to get me riled up. But, But that's because I was having more direct experience with feeling marginalized as a female than I did as a black person. Patriarchy. The census only added mixed race in the year 2000. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's it's so extremely recent. Speaking of, like, being able to tell context in history and you're like, wait, 2000? That's yeah. the first. And, and the growth from 2000 to 2009 in people who identified as mixed race was over 30 mm-hmm. percent mm-hmm. compared to 9 percent growth in the population overall. Yes, there is probably some growth in that in the mixed mashup population. Mm-hmm. There's also actually people getting the chance for the first time to identify that way. Sure. And then what does that mean to have the government again acknowledge that or it's somehow to be institutionalized or be a part of your kind of the identity that you're officially recognized as versus mm-hmm. uh, your own personal identification. I mean, I have the opportunity to define myself as mixed now. And I think if someone said, what are you? I'd say I'm black. I'd still, I would say what I said when I, if you'd asked me when I was seven, mm-hmm. I'd say the exact mm-hmm. same thing. I would not actually change the answer. Why do you think that is? On the one hand, that's the way I thought of myself. On the other hand, I was keenly aware from a very young age that, that that's not how the outside world necessarily saw me. And so that, um, there were certain things about what it meant to be very visibly black and and how you were treated that I was not privy to because I was not being treated that way. Right. If there was any reluctance to call myself black, it was because I had felt like I hadn't earned it. Right. <laughs> right. The world at large should not look at me as a black woman. I felt they didn't know what to make of me. Only black people knew that I was black. Those are the That's only so people who could look mm-hmm. at me and know what know what I was because I wasn't constantly self conscious about how I moved throughout the world and what, how I came off to other people because of my skin color or the features that I had or my hair because it was oftentimes, uh, for many people, hard to distinguish me from, I don't know, a dark-haired um, Caucasian. Could, right. Um, or you could be Latina. You sure. could be that, Mediterranean, all those. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. the calling myself black felt purposeful and felt familiar and comfortable because that's what I'd always called myself. I was also aware of the fact that there was something that maybe I would have described as missing, which would have been an experience of being, like, authentically being black. And now we're getting into weird territory because I don't know if there's any such thing as authentically being black, but, like, that's the way I thought of it in a very simple way as a, as a younger person. You're entering into our territory. Yeah. <laughs> the, the weird authenticity. Well, I think, I mean, you raise a really good point, which is that, like, w- w- what is it to be enough of something? Mm-hmm. When do you get to be part of a community yeah. that you feel an affinity to that maybe doesn't define all of you. Like, how? where is that line? Like, we talk about being, um, is half ever enough? Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to be half if you identify as this one thing? And what does it mean to choose how you're going to identify? And, like, what a powerful act that is. Mm-hmm. And also one that other people get confused by. And you're like, what do you fucking care? Yeah. This is, I'm choosing this, right? Yeah. Like, this is going to, this is the identity I choose. And there, there's some connection here. As you said, like, you identified more primarily as a woman, or as a female, because a female. That, as that's one of that's one of the ways in which you were more recognized, or you felt some of those pressures more, or you felt I really felt that I was a bit of a tomboy and I was very loud, and I didn't 
care that much about how I looked until I became like maybe like 13 or 14. I, I was very adamant that the boys were no better than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I was treat and that there was a certain way that we were treated in life that suggested that boys were better than me. I encountered that notion either uh, implicitly or explicitly. It, it felt a lot more than anything else. So maybe that's why I was more worked up about it. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't feel that I was being treated any certain way because I was black. Because again, people didn't always look at me and know that I was black. Right. And I think that if I had been born to two black parents or if I had been born with a darker skin and more African-American features, when I became aware of the fact that there were like strong tensions between historically and, and, and in the present tense between uh, white Americans and black Americans... I don't know if I read this somewhere, if I heard the term race war, but I used to always say, from a, as a child, I mean, I don't mean like as a five-year-old, but as like a nine or ten-year-old, if there was ever a race a race war, I would be on the black side. Like that, that, that to me was the answer to what, why, if people said, why do you consider yourself black when you have one white parent? I would say, that was my answer. If there was a race war, I would be on the black side, killing the whites. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't wishing for a race war, but that was the only way that I could explain to someone. Like I felt that was the, that was the simplest terms I could put it in. Like no, it makes what it very would, clear. What would be the ultimate decision I would have to make if I had to make a decision between whether I was black or white? Then maybe that would be a place where I'd have to make that decision, or it would be made for me. Right. And that I'm not saying I desired to kill white people, but. <laughs> Given the, uh, you know, if I had to choose sides, I would have chosen the Did the you almost side. say if given the opportunity? No. <laughs> I feel like when I said, when I was giving that example or that anecdote, that Amy was looking at me with a little bit of horror. <laughs> well, no, they- no. Luckily, it doesn't seem you're going to have to make that choice. No. So one, we're, one we're luckily, hopefully heading in the direction away from that. Hey guys, it's almost high holiday time, and we have so many good stories for you at mashupamericans.com. Check out our guide to having your best new Jew year and all our recipes for after you break your fast. I can vouch for our Jewish Salvadoran lime and chicken soup. Mashupamericans.com. What is the perspective of about race? What is your MO? My personal MO is that um, I think that there are important discussions that need to be had and that I don't have answers and I'm not going to ever act like I do. And in fact, I think part of the way of part of the way to educate oneself and to build community is to not come um, armed with all the answers, but to come armed with questions and being interested in dialogue, especially around issues of race. So I think people should be assertive in expressing their opinions, but I also think that they should be aware of the fact that their opinions are not necessarily fact, nor nor the end-all, be-all, and that the best way to try, try to live is to be is to realize that we don't, most of us don't know anything. And the whole scheme of things, we know nothing. And there's a certain assuredness sometimes that that comes across, Mm -hmm. especially in rhetoric around politics or feminism or race, and especially on social media, from like, you know, and I'm like, you're 27. And it actually wouldn't matter if you were 37 or even 57. (laughs) I would still be like, you're way too confident in that you know the the truth or the answer to all things. Yes, 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 yes. Like, like, let's all be a little bit more fucking humble. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, I could not agree more. I, I agree with you. The confidence 
or the arrogance, I think more mm-hmm. more that people mm-hmm. say things with, um, most things are actually pretty gray. And yeah. your your perspective or your experience really does matter to how you see that and what right. your truth is in that. And so being completely dismissive of other people's experiences is so unrigorous yeah, and right. so ultimately uninteresting in terms of having conversation and making things better. Yes, there are certain things that I feel very pretty firm about with regards to race, like white supremacists, no good. <laughs> <laughs> no bueno white supremacy. But I think that there are lots of nuances in how we talk about race that that that, that I think you know, the other ways that we talk about race are, are, are I don't know about calcified, but like, you know, tense. Um, I don't Binary. Think we, yeah, we don't always know how to do that, uh, and and I count myself in that in that category. So I don't feel like I'm my interest in this is is as a citizen, <laughs> um, you know, more than as a expert. I'm eager to learn from other people about their thoughts and the ways that they see the world. And the best way to do that is to ask questions. And I'm fairly good at asking questions. I'm also okay with extemporaneously just going off on tangents, but I'm very pretty good at asking questions. So that I see my role as transferring my curiosity and some of my anxiety about discussions about race to this podcast in a way that is productive and um, provocative and rewarding for the listeners. What advice would you give to somebody that is in a similar position but is maybe not as expert at asking questions? I think that the most important thing when talking about things that are difficult, whether it's race or whether it's your own personal life or whether it's, you know, what's in your bank account or is to admit when you feel uncomfortable before you start talking about it is to put it in context mm. and to, mm. and to own that because um you are, yes, you're making yourself somewhat vulnerable, but you're also about to approach a, a that is tense or um, that that's a way to connect with someone before even a discussion, a difficult discussion commences, which is to assert your humanity and not knowing how to have the discussion. (laughs) That I think is the best thing that a person can do. Now, some people think that that might be an expression of weakness. Um, I don't personally believe that admitting to fear or anxiety or uncertainty or lack of knowledge is um, a sign of weakness unless you believe it is. Right. <laughs> but um, I think that's really the first thing that anybody can do. The other part of the equation here, which is that then if somebody shows their vulner- vulnerability that way, it's just to be more accepting and open and non judgmental when a person is clearly trying to say something to you or ask you something. That also sometimes talking about like the rigorousness of dialogue or the way that people are so. Um, not humble in the way that they like, oh, you are absolutely wrong. It makes people afraid to ask questions. Yeah. Um, and it's not always on you to have to answer them. You could also be like, you know, I don't feel like I have to <laughs> answer yeah. that to or, you. Or I don't feel like I can answer that right now or, or, or yeah. you know, what, what have you. But at least it's a, it's a beginning. Yeah. yeah. And that's the most important thing. Yeah. Wait, I have important questions like who is your celebrity crush? David Strathairn, who's, who's an actor, who's probably like yes. a um, Where do you feel most at home? Uh, California, where I'm from. Where in California? Anywhere. Like just being in California makes me really? feel most at home. Yeah. I know, girl. Uh-huh. What is your bubba myself? I've heard that like cats, you know, steal the breath of sleeping babies, which I don't actually believe, but I have seen a cat poised over a sleeping baby before and wondered what was going on. My Koreans have a thing about cats, but yeah. I don't know what it is. 
Yeah. But they don't like them. Oh, Koreans don't like cats? There's something. Okay, then I'm not going to Korea. But you know where you should go is Japan. Oh. They love cats. Hell yes. <laughs> Hell yes. There's no, so no. many cat cafes. I know. I got There's a cat cafe around the corner from where I live now. No, there's not in a Brooklyn. cat cafe in Brooklyn, is there? Amy. <laughs> well, let's go. There is. It's on Atlantic <laughs> Avenue between Henry and Clinton Streets. There's a cat cafe. BYO cat? Or can you go and like pet cats? There are cats there. For, they're up for adoption. You should just come over with okay, the kids and we'll go over to the cat cafe. I'll do it 100%. It's great. And on that. <laughs> thank uh, you, thank Anna. You. Thank you for having me. This thank you so much. This was so fun. It was great. Thank you. That was Anna Holmes, doyen of content at First Look Media and the new co-host of About Race, a podcast which you should definitely be checking out every Friday night. You can find her on all the socials at Anna Holmes. Or in California, hanging out with Mwa. Kali, represent. Yes. Where do you feel most at home, Rebecca? I think I feel most at home in big cities, but mostly L.A., New York, and Sao Paulo. Mm-hmm. All those cities feel like your heart. Yeah, they are. My heart is basically one third of each of those, so it <laughs> makes sense. What about you? <laughs> um, I would say I like Hawaii. I love Honolulu. It's just where everyone is Asian, everybody speaks English, and everybody eats salad with chopsticks. But not chorks. The new fork chopstick combo that we've been hearing a lot about recently. I am totally not feeling. Shaking my head vigorously, definitely not chorks. No Mash chorks. of Americans are anti-chorks, and they're also me, Amy Choi. And me, Rebecca Lair. Our producer today was Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our engineer was John Fredenberg. Our show is produced by American Public Media and Southern California Public Radio, KPCC. We're also supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. Ciao. Bye. Bye.